This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Jewitches podcast, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by jewitches.com. Every episode we dive into a new topic on Jewish witchcraft, magic, mysticism, folklore, and practice. And in our mini episodes, we break down interesting topics in just about 10 minutes. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram at Jewitches, Tumblr and Twitter at The Jewitches, and join us on Patreon. Links and citations are always available in the description. Hello and welcome to the Jewitches podcast. Today we are tackling one of the most requested topics since the creation of Jewitches. People are always so curious to know if the Jewish tradition has anything to say about crystals and precious stones. And I'd love to dive right in, but before that, I want to remind you all to like, subscribe, follow, rate, and review. And we've had some questions. What does rating and reviewing do? On podcasting platforms, specifically ones like Apple Podcasts, there are charts. And when you are pushed out on the charts, more people listen. And Jewitches is provided as free educational content. And the way that you can support us for free is by rating and reviewing. Uh, it pushes us to a larger audience and allows us to not have to do as many brand deals and makes it easier for us to keep creating educational content for all of you. If you do want to support us, you absolutely can through our Patreon, where you get lots of amazing perks, uh, patreon.com slash jewitches. You can also support us via anchor.fm slash jewitches. And you can also support us on Buy Me a Coffee and ko-fi slash jewitches. Those are all great ways you can support us and, of course, the content that you love. With all that being said, that should be all of our housekeeping, and we'll just dive right in with the meat of the episode, talking all about crystals and stones. For those seeking spirituality, crystals have become almost synonymous with mystical wisdom, but almost exclusively through New Age lenses. The New Age amoeba functions through appropriation and assimilation into itself. Take from a culture, dilute the meanings, apply generalizations, mix and blend with other appropriations, spit back out. It is therefore not surprising that so many people are shocked by the presence of wisdom surrounding stones in Judaism. After all, the quote-unquote Judeo-Christian entity envisioned by New Age carriers of crystals often decry how devoid of magic and quote-unquote true spirituality Judaism is. Of course, Judeo-Christianity does not exist, and we have an entire blog dedicated to this, and precious stones have existed as an important part of the Jewish spiritual ecosystem since the time of Exodus. Precious stones is a good term that serves to encapsulate a wide variety of rocks, gems, and crystals that are included with this tradition, and that's primarily the terminology we're going to use. To quote, 
Jews were the leading importers of and dealers in gems during the early Middle Ages, and Christian Europe attributed to them a certain specialization in the magic of properties of precious stones. We're going to say it in Latin now. Christianos fidem in verbos, judeos in lapidibos, preciosos et paganos in erbos poner. Christians put their trust in words, Jews in precious stones, and pagans in herbs, ran the adage. While New Age thought dominates much of the discussions surrounding precious stones, Jews are inundated with accusations of idolatry when found engaging with them through collecting, owning, or worst of all, believing in a function of a stone beyond its aesthetic appeal. But this is not new to Judaism in the slightest. In the tome Jewish Magic Before the Rise of Kabbalah, it discusses magic gems extensively, with Harari describing about 5,000 such gems known today found mainly in, Eastern, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Lava, carnelian, a variety of jasper stones, lapis lazuli, sard, hematite, magnetite, limonite, and more. Some are also made of glass. These magic stones could be engraved with the names of God, words, and symbols, like an etrog, lulav, and menorah, etc., or be left whole. In 1650 or 16, 1615 or 1616 Kakao, the Jewish community issued a law that forbade the wearing of precious stones, with the exception of pregnant women, who could wear a ring containing one for its protective powers. Laws regarding the outlawing of wearing ostentatious precious stones were not uncommon in Jewish communities. They served multiple purposes protecting the community from anti-Semitism and rumors, protecting the community from assimilation, assimilation oftentimes a result of the desire to no longer be the victim of anti-Semitism, and the protecting the community from attacks stemming from jealousy or threats of violence due to the perception of the community as unduly enriched. We'll start in the time of the Exodus. After leaving Egypt, the Torah tells us of the creation of the priestly vestments worn by the Kohanim, or high priests, of the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. The connections surrounding precious stones forged here interweave and connect Jewish thought on the topic in the coming millennia. To quote, It shall have two shoulder pieces attached. They shall be attached at its two ends, and the decorated band that is upon shall be made like it, of one piece with it, of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarn, of fine twisted linen. Then take two lapis lazuli stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. On the two stones, you shall make a seal engravings, the works of a lipidary on the, so the names of the sons of Israel, having bordered them with frames of gold attached the two stones to the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones for remembrance of the Israelite people whose names Aaron shall carry upon his shoulder pieces for remembrance before Hashem. Then make frames of gold and two chains of pure gold braid these like corded work and fasten the corded chains to the frames. You shall make a breast piece of decision worked into a design, make in the style of the ephod, make it of gold, of blue, purple and crimson yarns and a fine twisted linen. It shall be square and doubled, a span in length and a span in width, and set it in mounted stones in four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of carnelian, chrysolite and emerald. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire and an amethyst the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and a crystal, the fourth row, a barrel, a lapis lazuli, and a jasper. They shall be framed with gold in their mountings. The stones shall correspond in numbers to the names of the sons of Israel. 
12 corresponding to their names. They shall be engraved like seals, each with its name for the 12 tribes. On the breastpiece, make braided chains of corded work and pure gold. Make two rings of gold on the breastpiece and fasten the two rings at the two ends of the breastpiece, attaching the two golden cords to the two rings at the end of the breastpiece. Exodus 7.24. If you're interested in seeing a visual depiction of this, you can head to the Jewish's website and look at the blog post, Crystals and Precious Gems in Judaism, and scroll down. There is a depiction of the priestly vestments there. Each of the precious stones was engraved with the name of one of the 12 tribes and was thus endowed with meaning through the ages. These meanings have varied and fluxed depending on the community, the translations, the texts, etc. One such list of the tribe, the name, and the meaning is this. This is provided by Chabad. Reuben, Odem, Ruby or Carnelian, helps with childbirth. Shimon, Pitda, Chrysolite, Emerald, Cool's Body. Levi, Baraket, Onyx, Topaz, Enlightenment. Judah, Nofech, Malachite, Carbuncle, Overpower Enemies. Issachar, Sapir, Lapis Lazuli, Sapphire, Helps Eyesight, Healing. Zebulun, Yahalom, Zircon, Diamond, Helps Sleep. Dan, Leshem, Jacinth, Zircon. Naphtali, Shavu, Agate, Helps to Ride. Gad, Achlama, Amethyst, Bravery. Asher, Tarshish, Topaz, Aquamarine, Helps Digestion. Joseph, Shoham, Beryl, Onyx, Perceived Well by All. Benjamin, Yashpeh, Jasper, Helps Blood Clotting. Joshua Trachtenberg, however, in his work, Jewish Magic and Superstition, dedicated nearly a chapter to gems, detailing these various precious stones, as outlined in an unpublished 14th century manuscript, Sefer Gematriot. It's important to note that the translations of the precious stones is different or directly contradicts what is previously shown in the list I just read out to you. Modern Hebrew may also have different understandings of the words than previously cited uh, or previously used as cited in a 14th century manuscript. For example, in modern Hebrew, Yahalom means diamond, while it's translated by Trachenberg and others as emerald or zircon or diamond. So obviously the meanings have changed over time. So this is Trachenberg's list with the translations of this 14th century unpublished manuscript with an unknown author. Shimon, Pita, Topaz. This is the Prasinum, question mark, but it seems to me it is the Smeralda, question mark. It is greenish because of Zimri, the son of Salu, number 25 to 14, who made the Simeonites green in the face, and it is dull in appearance because of their faces paled. Its use is to chill the body. Ethiopia and Egypt are steeped in sensuality, and therefore it is to be found there to cool the body. It is useful in affairs of the heart. Levi, Baraket, Emerald or Smarag. This is the carbuncle, which flashes like lightning and gleams like a flame. This is the stone of Levi. It is beneficial to those who wear it. It makes man wise and lights up his eyes and opens his heart. Taken as a, in the, as a food in the form of powder with other drugs, it rejuvenates the old. Judah, Nofech, carbuncle. This is the smaragd. It is green, for Judah's face was of a greenish hue when he mastered his passion and acknowledged his relationship with Tamar. Genesis 38. This stone is clear and not cloudy like Simeon's, for when he was cleared of suspicion of Joseph's death, his face grew bright with joy. The function of this stone is to add strength, for one who wears it will be victorious in battle. This is why the tribe of Judah were mighty heroes. It is known, called Nofech because the enemy turns, 
Hofech, his back to one who wears it, as it is written, Thy hand shall be on the back of thine enemies. Genesis 49.8 Issachar, Sapir, Sapphire The stone of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, Chronicles 12.32 And of the Torah, it is purplish blue in color, and it is excellent to cure ailments, and especially to pass across the eyes, as it is said, It shall be heal to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Proverbs 3.8 Zebulun, Yahalom, emerald. This is the stone of Zebulun. It is the stone, it is the jewel called Perla. It brings success in trade and it is good to carry along on a journey because it preserves peace and increases goodwill. And it brings sleeps for it is written, now my husband will sleep with me. Genesis 30, 20. Dan, Leshem, Jacinth. This is the stone of, Je- of Dan, which is the Topaziah. The face of a man may be seen in it in reverse for they overturn the graven image of the idol. Judges 18. Naphtali, Shvo, Agate. This is the stone of Naphtali, which is the Tokiska. It establishes man from his, his place and prevents him from stumbling and falling. It is especially coveted by knights and horsemen. It makes this man secure on his mount. Gad, Achlema, Amethyst. This is the stone called Cristallo. It is very common and well-known. It is the stone of God because the gem of God were very numerous and renowned. There's another gem called Diamante, which is like Cristallo, except it has fairly reddish hue, a faintly reddish hue, and the tribe of God used to carry this with them. It is useful in war for it buoys up the heart so it doesn't grow faint, for God used to move into battle ahead of their brothers. The stone is good even against demons and spirits, so that one who wears it is not seized by that faintness of heart when they call their glolil. Asher, Tarshish, Beryl. Tarshish, Beryl. This is the Yakint, Jacinth, that the Targum calls the sea green, which is its color. It is the stone of Asher. Its utility is to burn up food. No bad food will remain in the bowels of one who consumes it, but we transformed into a thick oil. For it is written, as for Asher, his bread shall be fat. Genesis 49.20. Sometimes the fa- sapphire is found in combination with the Yakint because the tribes of Asher and Issachar intermarried. Because the bread of Issachar is fat for all creatures and the face of faces of the stout people are ruddy. The Yakint is sometimes of a reddish hue. Yosef, Shoham, Onyx. This is the stone called Nikli, Nikhilus, an agate. It is Joseph's stone and it bestows grace. One who wears it at a gathering of people will find it useful to make them hearken his words and to win success. Benjamin, Yashpeh, Jasper. This is Benjamin's and it is called the Yaspi and is found in a variety of colors, green, black, and red, because Benjamin knew that Joseph had been sold and often considered revealing this to Jacob, and his face would turn all colors as he debated whether to disclose his secret or to keep it hidden, but he restrained himself and kept the matter concealed. This stone, Yashpeh, because it has a bridle on his tongue, also has the power to restrain blood. There have been powerful arguments for which stone should be interpreted, with each translation. However, due to the long-standing disagreements, there have been many different properties assigned to each of the stones. For example, ruby, carnelian, and other red stones have long served as protective charms and amulets for birthing parents and newborn children because of their red color. As suggested in Trachtenberg's translation, it was also suggested to be consumed. To quote, another Italian physician recommended jasper for easing delivery, the Bible tells us that in the breastplate of the high priest, Jasper is the son of Benjamin, whose mother died when he was born. To quote, Baya ben Asha's commentary on the high priest's breastplate proposed that the red stone representing Reuven grew in certain places in the sea, apparently coral, and explained it's accepted in, unprom- in 
Promoting Fertility by Method of Word Association. Baya Ben Asher, who was writing in Spain, and the Germanic author of the Ashkenazic manuscript, probably both wrote an older text on the medical use of gemstones. To quote, Coral is said to be a powerful protector against both sorcery and the evil eye. It is thought to keep women sane, healthy, modest, and fertile. Ruth Weisberg. Coral is a powerful protective substance included in amulets, particularly those of children and laboring parents. As Baya Ben Asher argued that it was actually the red gem found within the priestly vestments, it was a common protective amulet among many cultures. It was often highly expensive and therefore extraordinarily prized. Amulets made of it were generally reserved for the most vulnerable in society, children and birthing parents, as well as brides. This love of coral spread across the diaspora and can be found in German Ashkenazic communities and Yemenite Jewish communities alike. In Barcelona, there were Jews involved in the trade of coral, and researchers, though not focused on the topic, concluded also concluded pieces of coral jewelry were offered as amulets to protect it and pro- for protection to children in the 14th century. To quote, red ribbons. Red threads, ribbons, or coral bracelets would be tied around infants and children's wrists, and sometimes also around the little finger on one hand. Sleeves might be hemmed with red thread. In the folk imagination, red was associated with fire, and protective objects of this color attracted and then absorbs, and hence neutralized, the gaze of people with the evil eye. To see an example of what an amulet necklace could look like with coral, go no further than our website where we have an example of a Jewish Kurdish amuletic protective necklace that includes sword imagery as well as coral pearls. To quote, in southern Yemen, a necklace would consist of seven strings of alternating silver and coral beads worn only on special occasions. In the middle, there were a small tubular filigree charm case with a delicate pendant that would ensure protection for the wearer. Moving on, pearls were not only beautiful, but were a staple within Ashkenazi Jewish communities. Born in what is now Belarus, memoirist Yek. Memoirist Yekheskel. Born in what is now Belarus, memoirist Yekheskel Kotik observed, even the poorest women wore strings of pearls. Though it is important to note that when one did not have access to the genuine article, imitations were worn. Perhaps this is due to the use of pearls in Judaism as representative of beautiful and rare items, particularly within Proverbs 31.20 and a blessing said to women. Who can find the woman of valor far more than her pearls is her worth? Pearls were often used in Jewish art as well within jewelry, headdresses, particularly shtantichels, etc., and ritual tools. They're also mentioned numerous times in Jewish texts, entrenching them as an item of value to be prized by Jews. In Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, Midrashic retellings of Torah stories, it is said that within the belly of the whale, a story we're all very familiar with, Jonah finds light in a pearl. To quote, Rabbi Meir said, one pearl was suspended inside the belly of the fish and it gave illumination to Jonah, like this sun which shines its might at at noon, and it showed to Jonah all that was in the sea and in the depths. As it is said, light is sown for the righteous, Psalm 97, 11. To quote, one may go out with a preservation stone, which prevents miscarriages, on Shabbat. They said in the name of Rabbi Amir that one may go out even with the counterweight of a preservation stone, i.e. a stone or another object that was weighed against and found equivalent to the weight of the preservation stone, which is also effective. And this leniency applies not only to women who miscarried in the past and is concerned that she may miscarry again, though it applies even to the woman who has never miscarried and is concerned lest she miscarry for the first time. And it applies not only to the woman who is aware that she is pregnant, rather it applies even if a woman suspects she may become pregnant and miscarry. 
Rav Yemar Ba said in the name of Abaya, and this applies only when he happened upon an object that is found equal to the preservation stone when he weighed it against the stone, not when one alters the object to weigh the weight of the preservation stone. Abaya raised a dilemma. With regard to the counterweight to the counterweight, i.e., one who finds an object and determines weight by weighing against the counterweight to the preservation stone, what is the legal status? May a woman go out in the public domain with it? The Gemara concludes, let this dilemma stand unresolved. Shabbat 66b 20. Atites, also known as eagle stones, are believed to be called preservation stones or eventekuma within Judaism. However, because of the vague nature of the discussion, it allows for a broad range of interpretations within Judaism. As the quote from the above, which I just read from the Talmud shows us, it was permitted even on Shabbat as one was pregnant to wear their preservation stone. This is a similar law, is similar to the law cited regarding red stones in order to help with pregnancy. The exact nature of a preservation stone was a little bit less known. Tachenberg cites, to quote, several medieval writers were more informative, but unfortunately they employed one or employed one or more, perhaps several French equivalents, whose meanings in Hebrew transliteration are not altogether clear, but which show that these were in common use. One writer went into some detail, to quote, this stone is pierced through the middle and is round, about as large and as heavy as a medium-sized egg, glassy in appearance, and is to be found in a field. He explained, the French term seems to indicate a hollow stone, which is smaller, which is a smaller one, a sort of rattle, perhaps an eagle stone or atites, and later a commenter called it a stanchos meteorite, or a shooting star. The functionality through sympathetic magic is discussed by Harari. The way in which they used to use in treatment process depended on the mental connection that exists in the patient's life and the properties of the potential remedy or its ingredients. The simplest illustration of this is that of whispering shells, which were used in treating tinnitus. Amulets from eagle stones, a stone with one or more smaller stones inside of it, were worn as protecting against miscarriage. The Jewish populace tended to believe stones of the type were to be stanchious shooting stars. From the angle of folk medicine, what is most important here is the similarity between the shape of the pregnant woman's belly and that of the stone. Just as teeth could be either be as strong as stone or as soft and weak as meat, so could a woman's womb be strengthened by the virtue of her wearing a stone amulet. Moving forward, the Tzohar stone is often included in discussions regarding precious stones in Judaism, as, as it is undoubtedly important. However, commenters like Rashi have debated whether or not it is actually even a stone. To quote, some say this is a window, others say that it was a precious stone that gave them light. Genesis Rabbah 31.11. The version in Sanhedrin 108b seemingly agrees here. Make a Tzohar for the Ark. Rabbi Yohanan says, the Blessed One instructed Noah, Set their precious stones and jewels so they may give you light, bright as the noon. Rabbi Dennis's text indicates that there is a play on words regarding the word sohar and the word sohorim here. Some believe it to be a fragment of supernal light given to Adam and his descendants. However, like many things, the Jewish community is happiest without coming to a single consensus here. However, the Midrash Pirkei de Eliezer, Eliezer 23 indicates that Abraham, the patriarch, may have had a similar stone to this one. To quote, Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai says, Avraham had a precious stone hung around his neck, which immediately brought healing to any sick person who looked upon it. And when Avraham, our father, left this world, the Blessed Holy One hung it from the wheel of the sun. The owners of who possessed this incredible stone have spread throughout the diaspora, as the owner not only had illumination, but had access to the secrets of the Torah and all of its powers. Rabbi Dennis outlines some of its supposed changing of hands as follows. After the fall, the angel Haziel passes it to Adam. It is given to Noah. As we read, some of it claimed it stops after Abraham gave it to Noah when it's hung upon the sun. 
but others claim it continued on. Joseph used it for dream divination. Moses found it among his bones and put it in the tabernacle. The Zohar claimed that Simon uh, ben Yochai found it in the Midrashic era. So after that, we'll move on to the concept of birthstones. It is believed that one of the first mentions of birthstones was by Josephus, a Romano-Jewish first century historian born in Jerusalem. He believed there was a correlation between the 12 tribes and the months, giving each month a stone that would be sacred to it. However, in the modern day, there is seemingly no agreed upon correlation between the months of the Hebrew year and the 12 tribes, though there are many lists. I've been sent many lists. I have found many lists of which tribe correlates to which month uh, based on numerous factors, um, based on Kabbalah, based on uh, star signs, based on a number of different things, and whether they correlate to a Hebrew month list versus an English or Gregorian list. All changes. The quote-unquote official lists of birthstones have nothing to do with the priestly vestments, but are rather agreed upon by official gemological organizations. And because of the secular nature, there are many Jews who take no issue in wearing birthstones, especially as the concept was seemingly originally Jewish and is cited as such by many of these said gemological institutes. Now, let's not discount, as we near the end of this episode, the importance of vitality and of beauty. Hidur mitzvah has multiple meanings, but his literal meaning is the quote-unquote beautification of the mitzvah or the enhancement of the mitzvah. It can also be interpreted as the meticulous observation of a mitzvah beyond the formal demands of the law. Through this concept, Jews found balance. In a community where modesty and adornment coexist, beautiful things can exist to enhance the experience of life and devotion. We beautify our ritual tools to sanctify them and create a meaningful space for creating ritual. There is extensive inclusion of precious stones and items such as Shabbat candles, Havdalah sets, Besamin boxes, Havdalah candle holders, etc., knives, circumcision blades, challah knives, magical knives, swords, Torah crowns, yads, which are Torah pointers, not to mention ritual and ceremonial wear like Jewish jewelry, headdresses like the Yemenite gargush, Ashkenazi shtantichel, kippot, wedding dresses, robes, shoes, and all of that cannot be excluded from our discussion because Outside of ritual, there's also mundane art, art, jewelry, normal clothes. We may see them as trivial, but they served an important purpose in beautifying the lives of our ancestors. Just as the recent trend to quote-unquote romanticize our lives has gripped the recent generations, so have our ancestors sought beauty and love in their journeys. And to do so was not only auspicious, but could be representative of devotion and love of Judaism, Jewishness, and what it took and what it meant to be alive as Jews basking in Jewish culture, whatever that meant like and looked like and felt like for them. To quote, Robeno Bahaya's claim that in order for the power of these stones to be effective, the reason must be ritually cure. He warns that if a person is not ritually clean, the stones will be either ineffective or even harmful. The topic of ritual purity is quite involved with a long list of laws and details, but at the simplest level today, it involves immersion in a ritual bath, mikveh, within the guidelines of Jewish law. He explains that the stones interact based on a person's spiritual level, where purity or impurity plays an important role. Like so many things that exist within Judaism, the tools that are used are not unique to Judaism. It is through the methodology and the routine and the life outside of a specific act that brings into focus how the act is interpreted. 
When one wears a red stone for protection, that does not automatically make it a Jewish act. For this is a superstition, a folk tradition, and a belief that exists in many cultures around the globe. However, when this person in Jewish, is Jewish and lives their life by Jewish principles and performs this act because of their Judaism, this act becomes Jewish because they are Jewish. And according to a very common belief, when someone lives their life in a fully ritually pure manner, ritual purity as described by their community, the stones will act in a way that they are prescribed. But if they live outside of the manner of appropriate conduct as prescribed by their community, they will not. This is particularly true when it comes to the harmful acts to their community. To quote, just as we have been taught in Bereshit Rabbah 10.7, there is no herb on earth which does not have a counterpart in the celestial regions provided in its individual mazal, and so is true of the precious stones. Having carefully absorbed what we have written about the gemstones in the garments of the high priest, you will note that he was surrounded by the names of the tribes of Israel in the front and behind, seeing these names were inscribed both on the breastplate and on the shoulder of the ephod. So by Rabbi Nubaya Semot, 28.15 Torah Commentary by Rabbi Bachia ben Asher. Judaism often struggles internally with the use of amulets, Through the usage, though the usage of amulets, often called kamayot, has never wavered. No amount of rabbinical finger-wagging ever put an end to the inherent belief in amulets that has always existed in Judaism. The rationalism that we so often associate with our religion, we use the term loosely here, is, a new con- is as new of a concept as religion itself. Precious stones are a stunning part of Judaism, but just as we are taught, no gem is as beautiful as wisdom itself. So here's going to be a, compo- uh, a hopefully comprehensive list of stones that we have mentioned today. If we forget to say one, please feel free to let us know. Uh, we do now also have a response button available on Spotify. So we have atites, agate, uh, amethyst, aquamarine, beryl, carbuncle, carnelian, chrysolite, coral, diamond, emerald, hematite, jas- uh, jacinth, Jasper, lapis lazuli, or lapis lazuli, however you prefer to pronounce it, lava, limonite, magnetite, malachite, onyx, pearl, ruby, sapphire, sard, topaz, turquoise, and a hiccup, zircon. So with all of that said, thank you so much for listening. Let us get on to our citations. But for that, if you enjoy our free content and you would like to send us a little something to support our free educational content. You can absolutely become a reoccurring patron, but if you're not into supporting monthly, you can absolutely make a one-time donation for, via coffee or buy me a coffee, two separate platforms. Both of them are great. They'll be linked in the description of this episode as always. And let's get on to sourcing. So we have uh, Chabad.org, their uh, 12 precious jewels. We also have J-Home, uh, stones and gems. We have Jewish Magic for the Rise of Kabbalah by Yuval Harari, Jewish Magic and Superstition by Joshua Trachenberg. We also cite uh, Piquet de Rabbi Eliezer on Safari. We have Oxford Chabad and one of their blog posts. We'll cite that one directly below. All of them will be directly below, but we can't read out this one because it's just a hyperlink. A Time to Be Alive, Customs on Folklore of Jewish Birth by Michelle Klein. Yuvo Encyclopedia, uh, article on dress. Nottingham Medieval Studies, Coral, Silk, and Bones, Jewish Artisans and Merchants in Barcelona between 1348 and 1391, A Frog Under the Tongue, Jewish Folk Medicine in Eastern Europe, uh, Marek Tujewiki, an Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism by Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis, and Safaria for Rabbeinu Baya Shemot. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Let us know what episodes you'd like to hear. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And follow wherever you are listening to make sure you hear about the next episode that's coming out.